Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Dowrick. Ben, I always try and think of something funny to say there, and I can't ever come up with anything. I did appreciate that window in time when you explored all those various monikers like a squire and master and sir. Oh, okay. But has the well run dry? Well, I mean, like, this is a series of movies without spoiling what they are yet unless you've read the title description, um, where people have, like, pseudonyms and stuff. So flashing through my head was a whole, like, oh, should I come up with a, you know, an international espionage terrorist-esque pseudonym, but nope. Or something as simple as uh, Bart Simpson calling Mo in The Simpsons as IP Daily. Anyone, sure. do I have an IP Daily? Sure, sure, exactly. Uh, it's your regular bantering buddy, IP Daily, here. <laughs> Why not? Uh, every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So Gabe and I ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we'll be reviewing two twin movies about counterism to experts trying to right the wrongs of the past by catching the infamous international terrorist, Carlos the Jackal. It's The Assignment versus The Jackal. Let the counter-terrorizing begin. Nice. Gabe, uh, no, help, I me. Mean, help me out here. <laughs> let the international espionage begin. Let the accents begin. Oh, don't get me started on the accent. No, we'll, before we're we going to get you started. Before we do, <laughs> let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So way back in the glorious era of high-concept movies, the 1990s, on the 26th of September, 1997, The Assignment was released. And here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. An American naval officer is recruited for operation to eliminate his lookalike, the infamous terrorist, Carlos the Jackal. So, Gabe, I think I know the answer to this question. When did you originally catch the assignment? Was it at the cinema or was it on TV just for this podcast recording? It's funny because before we recorded this, when we were chatting about these movies, I swore I must have seen this film you know, I, I certainly recall it being at the cinema. I recall seeing the poster for it at the cinema. But then as I started watching it, I realised for some reason I just had never seen this movie. I think in 50 episodes of recording podcasts, and I think this is our 50 or 51st episode, I would have bet the house that you had seen this movie because this film has all the traits, all the hallmarks <laughs> of a Gabe Dalric VHS rewatchable classic. Well, uh, and look, so I'm actually stunned you hadn't seen it. Me too. And maybe it's one of those movies where I swore I had. You know me. I'm a huge Ben Kingsley fan. You know, if he's there, I'm there. So, uh, but no, weird. And I, I, I turned it on expecting to be like, oh, yeah, of course, I remember this. Or like I'd forgotten that I remembered this. You know, like a movie that you sometimes watch and you realise, oh, no, I have... I have seen this movie. This all seems very familiar. Not zero familiarity. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. When I watched it, I watched it myself, especially for the podcast, I sort of felt guilty because I actually thought that I should have had seen it as a classic movie. And then watching it, I thought, actually, was this film even released at the cinema? Like, I recall the poster, so I think it was. It definitely was. But it was, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. But um. I think it vanished pretty quickly, which we'll get to when we come to the box office comparison. But, yeah, I myself had always wanted to see it but never had. And, yeah, I was actually surprised because I thought I'd recognise having seen perhaps a few grabs of the film on TV or something like that. And I hadn't seen a 
frame of this film before watching it for this podcast. Like the entire thing was a new experience for me, except for the poster. <laughs> when you say you wanted to see it, what stopped you in the last 23 years from seeing it? I think because I actually like The Jackal so much, which we'll get to, oh, okay. I just thought, eh, you know, I've already seen a version of this story. <laughs> so, and the space in your heart for one film about The Jackal. I'm not going to spat my twin movies, Gabe. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, me too. And um, that film is neither of these films. So uh, this will be a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> so later on, on the 14th of November, 1997, The Jackal was released. And here's its synopsis from IMDb. An imprisoned IRA fighter is free to stop a brutal, seemingly faceless assassin from completing his next job. So, Gabe, talk me through when and where you first watched The Jackal. I mean, I definitely saw this one at the at the pictures um, and I've seen it a whole stack of times since on, you know, Foxtel or, you know, uh, DVD. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what was it, 1997, I was a kid. I was just, I was just a kid looking to, looking to watch Bruce Willis play a killer at the peak of his popularity or in the waning era of his popularity. Yeah, I think this film actually in Australia opened a bit later in January 1998 and this again comes into that magical time of Ben seeing free movies at the commercial cinema. <laughs> so I think I saw this film twice because I could. And whenever it comes back on TV, I mean, I don't watch movies on TV anymore, but for I guess the next 15 years after it was released, I'd always wait for, which I won't spoil right now, I'll save it for our review, one particular scene featuring Jack Black that just is burnt into my memory and traumatised me. And if I was about, you know, after 20 minutes away from that scene, I'd just watch it. Totally. Because I'd want to see that sort of incredibly scarring and violent scene. Totally. Um, but before we get to the review, let's perhaps do a quick little uh, deep dive or shallow dive into how he got here with his two movies being released at the same time. Now, Gabe, um, this isn't a trick question, but uh, <laughs> do you have any idea as to how we end up with two Carlos the Jackal films in the same 12 months? Um, I feel like this is a trick question, Ben. You're trying to trap me. Uh, no, I have no idea. What do I win? Um, nothing, because nor do I. Okay. <laughs> it is pretty wild, though. It is pretty wild that both of these movies came out and, the, and it's taken us 51 podcasts to get to something that are so twine. Yeah, I mean, these ones seem like such an obvious twin movies combination and it's a very, very specific, similar premise they both share, like both trying to hunt down a pretty niche international terrorist. Um, I don't know, maybe it was a time when we were interested as a culture about people changing identity and, you know, going undercover. And I think Face Off was around the same time in 97, wasn't it? So this whole idea of pretending as someone else and perhaps TV special effects or TV makeup had improved to a point where you could really buy someone just changing a moustache and a bald cap and a fake nose and but it was before the internet, so you could still actually avoid, you know, CCTV and um, being tracked and sort of just disappear into a crowd. Perhaps it was that sweet spot is why we've got these films about these people like spies, like terrorists, who were just sort of basically elusive enigmas. Yeah, that's right. Not since uh, Spy Kids 3, I think, the one with Sylvester Stallone where he plays a variety of characters. Have I seen, a, seen an actor having so much fun in so many wigs? as the jackal. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, long story short, I couldn't find any trivia tidbits uh, as to how we end up in this situation. Um, but I can say that both films were sort of funded in different locations. Uh, the assignment had more of a sort of a European funding. 
um, mixed with American funding ostensibly, and the Jackal was a very much a classic sort of uh, Hollywood, you know, movie. So let's jump straight to our review. Gabe, let's start with The Assignment. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with The Jackal? Ben, every time we record these, almost often you throw to me and I first with a review and I sort of ramble semi-incoherently for a minute or two before, you know, you say something much more eloquent. We actually get into a conversation about it. Now, with this one, you've mentioned this as a classic twice. So I want to hear from you first on this one because I'm really intrigued by this idea that I guess you really like this movie. Uh, sorry, Gabe, you're looking too hard for an answer there. I've just used the same uh, oh, okay. Google Docs template, oh. <laughs> copy and paste, which includes the <laughs> word classic. Uh, and so I, I actually am not in a very considered and sincere way considering the assignment of classic movie. Uh, the, ja- the jackal is. The jackal is. Okay. Okay. Well, then, nonetheless, why don't you tell me what you thought of the assignment? Um, well, First of all, I think we should just say that The Assignment is a film that even though we both think we saw it, clearly does not exist in any way, much like that Kazam or Shazam movie um, or the Bernstein Bears versus the Berenstein Bears. Right. Because on IMDb, there is one entry under trivia which is based on a true story. And you can see a film from the Disney Channel, uh, like a kid's movie from 1963, that will have a thousand trivia entries. Right. <laughs> Spending a lot of time looking up uh, kids' movies from 1963 uh, on IMDb, aren't we, Ben? <laughs> and this one has one. So right. I guess the first observation, just as a general point, is I'm amazed how this film is just a not even a blip on the radar at all in the uh, the cinematic landscape. Totally, totally. As the film itself, um, let me say I really enjoyed it. I thought it was much better than I'd expected. I think because it had vanished, I'd sort of had assigned it to the – I don't know, the the DVD bin in my head as to being a pretty poor quality movie. Um, I actually thought it was really well made and like massive props to the director. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Christian Dugay, a European fella. I think he's French. Uh, I thought the film was incredibly stylishly crafted. Um, it opens with a sex scene at the start that takes in the best of flowing chiffon curtains that Tony Scott <laughs> seems to love. Um, and because it actually, well, I assume because it's been made or directed by a European, it definitely leans into the sex, which a prudish American action film wouldn't do. Totally. Um, I appreciate that. Like, <laughs> nice. why, can't we have, why can't we have a movie like Taken or an action movie that actually has swearing and sex of the same level. Yeah. Like yeah. you'll never hear someone drop the F-bomb in a John Wick movie or what of once in the movie because they're allowed to and you won't see any sex beyond kissing or, you know, maybe sex with a bra on occasionally. This is like, no, we're going to have breast nudity, we're going to have actual depictions of sex and not in a gratuitous way, just as two adults on this journey in this story. It just felt naturalistic and I guess for more of a mature audience and – I didn't actually like, like the depictions per se. It was just more that I respected the fact that it felt like an adult movie for adults. I mean, in the 90s, the 
category of film, you know, erotic thriller was still like a legitimate movie, you know, like you still had your basic instincts and your wild things, you know. Um, Oh, you nailed it. You're right. That was the era where many uh, teenage boys around the world came of age when they (laughs) watched those types of movies. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Pun intended. Um, But, yeah, but, like, it was still, you know, legit and oftentimes I have rued the the sad disappearance of the erotic thriller as, you know, films become increasingly kind of, I guess, chased. I mean, a lot of that sort of TNA and stuff has moved to cable, right? Like, you know, Game of Thrones was packed full of it. Um, but you're right, it was nice to see just a, a little bit of action on screen again. Um, do you think, Gabe, uh, that's what happened? Because if we just do a quick little segue here in terms of whatever happened to the um, romantic thriller um, with the femme fatale and those films you referenced are perfect examples like Basic Instinct, do you think the baton was handed to TV, mainly to HBO TV programs around the same time? Or do you think it was just the birth of, you know, the internet and online porn or something that kind of like distracted people? Because Game of Thrones, for example, and all those various HBO TV shows definitely had pretty impactful depictions, as much as you could have on a cable TV show. And um, and since then, we've barely seen any kind of like uh, erotic thrillers, unquote. Um, and much like how arc-rated comedies have kind of surged and disappeared at the cinema over various times – like, do you think that was – was it the internet? Was it TV? Or did we just sort of move on as a culture and people didn't need to get their fix in that way? I mean, it seems like an obvious answer would be, oh, yeah, of course, it was the internet. But given that a lot of that stuff just moved to TV anyway, it's not like the danger of being, you know, screen capped and living forever on, you know, MrSkin.com or something. I mean, that still exists. The the So – so while that might seem maybe like an obvious answer, I guess that's not. I don't know. Maybe it's just people don't want to go and sit in the cinema and watch Sharon Stone uncross her legs anymore. I don't know. Like I'd love to. I'd love to know more. Read a real, you know, deep dive insight into it. Um, because I think the answer is maybe more complex than just yeah. You know, uh, Twitter is full of prudes now who want to. You know shame people for enjoying movies that have sex scenes in them. Yeah, I sort of feel that if we were to perhaps track the evolution and uh, disappearance of certain movie genres at the cinema to perhaps, say, various political parties getting in and key key points in history like um, where they kind of defined culture, like, you know, for example, 9-11 or whatever it might be, I wonder if you could kind of like see an association where the focus for the community has shifted um, people became – it was just a generally more conservative time or something might have been seen as more flippant, you know, given the uncertainty and fear of a certain time. So, Wait, yeah. 9-11 did this? No, no. I'm saying if there were points in time that did that. Like, Fuck. Well, it's like, for example, what would be the effect of the pandemic? You know, there'll be a whole genre later on and will they mm. – will it just be like more zombie films, which we're already doing, or will it be something else entirely and it'll be this delayed way of handling the idea of isolation and death or something like that? Or totally. will everyone like lean into hard into comedies because they want levity? I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe when this current sort of trend of giant corporate tentpole kids' films that adults can enjoy too ends, it'll swing back the other way and it'll just be like Fuckfest 5000 at the cinema. <laughs> You have it there. That's Gabe, our crystal ball gazer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back to the assignment. Um, 
I, I mentioned, for example, some of the uh, stylish depictions of that opening post-coital sex scene at the very start. There's also this other particularly unusual uh, camera flourish that director does where, do you remember the very start when, spoilers for the assignment, we see Donald Sutherland having a coffee in a cafe and Carlos Jackal enters and explode, uh, throws a grenade and explodes. And he throws the grenade and the camera follows the grenade from his hand down two stories to the cafe where it lands. And you saw almost the identical camera trick that Michael Bay used in Pearl Harbor, <laughs> where you see a bomb drop uh, from a plane. Sure. And the camera follows it down. And I recall when I saw that shot, it was like basically a POV of a chasing bomb after the first bomb. And I recall when that film was released at the cinema, this is Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, he was criticised for trying to basically do a version of Titanic in with war and having those stylistic flourishes that took you out of the movie right. because you became very aware of the camera. I just thought it was very interesting seeing this film in 1997 doing something that felt like you might have seen in a music video or perhaps a TV commercial, but it didn't feel like a cheap execution. It was like something they'd spent a lot of time crafting. Ah, oh, Ben, this was a- To give it style. This was a cheap execution execution the that sequence and i get the budget and it's tough to compare it to you know pearl harbor is a piece of shit movie sure but like the filmmaking in it is pretty good <laughs> this sequence when the cafe blows up is so poor so laughably executed oh man like the cg has just not aged well here like oof oh i agree after that that grenade lands it is pretty like dodgy and like these lot of smoke to try and infer an explosion and they shake the camera around a bit. Yeah, I agree. It isn't a great execution. But I don't know. I sort of thought that the film obviously had a much lower budget than The Jackal and they're making the most with what they have. But it is dangerous to have a low budget to try and make a film about an international terrorist who blows things up if you can't actually afford to blow things up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what is this movie about? Like Aidan Aidan Quinn in his brief moment of leading man-ness plays Carlos the Jackal, an international terrorist, who turns out has an identical lookalike who's an American Navy officer who's recruited by Donald Sutherland to then hunt down Carlos. He's not recruited to kill him. He's just recruited to have the Russians capture him. Yeah, this feels like one of those difficult plots like in Batman v Superman or you know, where it's like it's step one, two, three to 73 and it's like... Wouldn't it have just been easier to say, we want you to connect with his ex-girlfriend, get her to confess something, and then we've got evidence on him or something like that. Mm. Or we want you to set him up in some way to draw him out and then we'll kill him. Yeah. But this whole idea of getting the Russians to somehow lose trust in him and then they doubt him and then the idea is that the Russians will kill him on behalf of the Americans – it does seem unnecessarily complicated. Well, I guess they've snookered themselves a little bit with this film because, like you said, the single piece of trivia on IMDb is based on a true story, which strikes me as total horseshit. But because Carlos was not famously killed by an identical twin guy recruited by the CIA, they sort of have to work backwards from a kind of boring ending. Yeah, in fact, Gabe, I watched this movie two weeks ago. I can't even recall what happens at the end. <laughs> uh, well, spoilers. Uh, Aidan Quinn as the, you know, Navy guy turns up somewhere and does something 
and then the Russians turn up and they don't actually catch Carlos because then he fakes his own death and the last scene is Carlos reading a newspaper clipping about him being dead. I don't know. It's, it's That's right. And uh, our American agent uh, is actually has been reassigned in a witness protection to a beach somewhere with his family. Yeah, yeah. And the, so the whole thing's like, why did we bother? Yeah, exactly. Like there's no victory at all. No. In fact, Gay, didn't you expect to have coming that ending where basically bit like, say, face off or something, the wife kisses her husband and he, you know, squeezes her butt or something or <laughs> yeah, totally. does something uncharacteristic and you go, oh, that's right. so maybe they killed the wrong person after the, all. The alien covenant, which one is Fassbender? Oh, who knows? Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I did expect something uh much more stupid because at least that would be entertaining. Hey, I'll tell you something I found about this movie, right? So they spend a bunch of time setting up Carlos, you know, played by Aidan Quinn in a terrible wig with a terrible accent and they borrow a couple of things from the actual Carlos, the jackal's backstory, bombing a cafe and sort of taking over some kind of Libyan petroleum, you know, uh, embassy thing. Then they go... Then they find Aidan Quinn's lieutenant commander, Annabel. I guess it's Hannibal without the H, but Annabel. Um, and then about an hour of the movie is just training him. It goes on forever, them training him. Donald Sutherland and Ben Kingsley sending through all these training exercises. He's got to shoot, shoot guys with paintballs. He's got to remember things in a room. He's got to, what else does he have to train for? Eating porridge. He eats, uh, yeah, he eats tons and tons and tons of porridge. I don't know what that's for. But oh, they explain it. Actually, that was quite clever because I was thinking the same thing, like why is he eating porridge every day, nothing else for three weeks, and then he loses weight, of course, and so on. And at the very end when he cracks it, remember how Donald Sutherland and Ben Kingsley both say to him, no, no, the reason you're eating that porridge is because that's what he was fed, the real Carlos Jackal, as a kid, so much so that he hates it. And if he was ever to smell or be exposed to it any way today, he would revolt. And so you've got to basically be experiencing part of what he experienced as a kid or as a young adult so that essentially you'll react in the right Christ. way should these circumstances arise. Having said that- It's like the worst parts of method acting. The odds of him being exposed to porridge. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, but what are the odds of porridge kind of coming into it? Yeah, like that's right. The porridge well, test. It's funny you say that because the ending of the film is actually set in a porridge factory. <laughs> <laughs> he falls down to a giant yeah. vat of porridge and dies like it's Terminator like, 2. Which one's the real Carlos? And then they both have to, <laughs> like, sniff porridge and that's how we find out. So, anyway, we spend this enormous amount of the screen time training and it just it just feels like the shape of the movie is all all off. Like, because then you realise, oh, well, there's only so much time for the actual mission at the end and that's the juice, you know what I mean? Like, that's the bit I'm here for like if you wanted that much training you got to be like the dirty dozen and make your movie three hours long yeah you're totally right gabe with that training montage it feels like the end of return of the king uh from lord of the rings where it feels like there's about six opportunities to end the training montage and they keep going and the funny thing was you only need to show certain beats of a training montage and then you cut to him actually in the field and you're going to show the same thing that he learned in training albeit with high stakes and real-world situation, but at least you're seeing it with high stakes. Whereas here, it's kind of the inverse of that. You basically have the training go for so long for an hour or so and this tiny proportion of time spent actually in the field where he basically doesn't encounter 
any similar situations to those that were exposed he was exposed to in the training. Um, there is one benefit of the training, mm-hmm. and uh, I mentioned before this film's you know more courageous or more adventurous in having depictions of sex than the chaste jackal with um, uh, our man Bruce Willis. There's that part where they bring in the ex-girlfriend uh, to teach right. him how to make they, love. They train him in cunnilingus. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and it is, it is funny, like, you know, if you sort of juxtapose the Rocky montage with, say, this, where this woman quite aggressively pushes him yeah. between her legs. That's great. And just instructs him that you'll make love like Carlos so that, you know, he, you, the, the other girlfriend that you're about to meet what we had to decipher one from the other. Um, I thought that was actually a kind of fun twist. And if this guy, Carlos Jackal, was such an incredible womanizer in true life or not, it would make sense if you're trying to seduce one of his ex-girlfriends that he'd have the uh the tools, so to speak, to be able to do that. Like that was actually well done. And it was also bit risque too with showing him full, with full, full frontal nudity as well so that's true that's true I mean I kind of I, I kind of admired that for the sake of the story and I guess I guess he gets to you know cheat on his wife then a whole bunch for for for, for his country and doesn't he then go back home um, and she's like they him and his wife get down she's like this isn't like you at all what happened yeah, but I thought that was actually really good because it's that classic case of someone going undercover like Donnie Brasco uh, with Johnny Depp where they start losing a sense as to what's the real version of them because they're so into the character. And so when she, you know, has sex with him or makes love with him and he's kind of like having kind of aggressive sex like he'd been taught in his training uh, dungeon. <laughs> Donald Sutherland just pushing his buttocks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just thought it was actually a really concise way to show uh, how deep he is into the role and uh, – how he basically is losing sight of the real version of him, which means he would also be a great undercover spy. Like basically he's ready. Right. He's ready to go. Right. It's just that I agree. It's the duration of time spent in that training is disproportionate to the journey. Yeah, yeah. So then then he's trained up well and good. And, again, you could have skipped because he's already like a lieutenant commander. You, you've already set him up as like he's already a high-ranking naval guy. All that training might have made more sense if he was just, you know, he owned the local tobacconist or... I, I think he was a doctor though. So I don't think if you're a doctor in the military, I mean, you've got certain basic sort of training skills when you first joined. Oh, sure, but this is all bullshit movie anyway. You've already put him in the military. Just make him kind of good at it. Yeah, okay. And then just get on with it, you know. Um, so he, so basically he knows how to shoot a gun, but he can't make love like Carlos. So you, <laughs> yeah, you just right. for an hour on that. That's right. They're like, well, actually it turns out you're pretty good at all that stuff, but you know what you're not good at? We've been watching you and your wife for weeks. Um, <laughs> and she is not satisfied. <laughs> um, <laughs> Americans. This is like this is like Europeans just commenting on Americans. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, There's a whole subtext to it. I, I did like the bit. There's a good bit in the movie where very weirdly, serendipitously, Carlos the Jackal's right-hand man, his 2IC, bumps into Aidan Quinn at an airport and they have some sort of passphrase or something that you're supposed to, you know, like, what is it, you know, the sun always rises in the east and you have to answer like, yeah, but when it does, make sure you wear ice skates or whatever, you know. Um, and there's a good bit there where he realises he hasn't said the right passphrase even though he's tried to act like a tough guy and ends in a in a shootout. 
I guess that was okay, you know. Okay, speaking of shootouts, surely you admire the part when they're having that race on the rooftops, which I thought was very much born, pre-born identity, where he jumps out of a building and runs across rooftops. And it looked pretty dangerous and they were using him a lot of the time. That was a very un-American way of shooting an action scene back in the 90s. Like, Board made it popular to have those naturalistic chase scenes and then James Bond kind of amplified that. But that was a good example of putting money on screen and it felt very kinetic. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. surely you can give, like, props there, right? I can give some props there. I think they even almost had the almost born scene. You know that very famous born scene where he jumps off the balcony and goes through the windows and yes. they've they've sort of have a, a a cameraman on a wire yep. jumping off after the stunt man. It's like And pretty, following him, much yeah. like, much like following the grenade. Yeah. Pull him yeah. through the broken window. They, yeah. they they almost do that shot. They do like a proto version of that where it's just not nearly as good, but the idea is there. So, you know, good for them. Maybe Paul Paul Gringrass saw this and went, yeah, I could do that and I'm do a shit ton better. Yeah, I actually feel that you could show this film to many of those filmmakers that came of age in the mid sort of 2000s and early 2010s and they would have seen scenes like this and just thought, ah, less of the same thing but executed better, much like many directors in the history of movies have experimented themselves or observed a certain technique used in a music video and then just basically done a better version of that within a more conventional movie narrative. Because this film, to me, does a lot of things right but just doesn't cohesively come together. And it's really the script and the motivation of the characters that lets the whole film down. But from a directing point of view and for the most part acting like Donald Sutherland, I think is really good. That part of the film is really good. It just doesn't all come together. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean... It's so funny. At the end of the film, they have this very self-serious kind of text scroll about how this may be a true story. And it's like, guys, your idea is so stupid that some random guy looks identical to one of the most sort of historically famous terrorists of all time. It's like, just just lean into how dumb this is. Don't try so hard and make it just, you know, if they just, I don't know, turned it up by 20% more, I think it would have been a much more fun Idea. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I actually would appreciate it being more grounded. So for me to have turned up by 20% in terms of perhaps the aspects of the script might have actually taken away, it depends on how they would have turned it up. I think, for example, bringing a lot of the drama and the stakes forward earlier in the story would have been much more Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I've got to say one thing which really intrigued me and also annoyed me is that this film to me seems like a prototype of one of my favourite films of all time, Spy Game by Tony Scott with Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. Oh, yeah, okay. I love Spy Game, but if you think about it, it's very similar. You've got an established CIA or intelligence expert who has a job of recruiting someone from outside conventional channels, trains him up, brings him into the game, and then basically tests him in various ways before releasing him but the young, unconventional spy kind of goes a bit rogue by falling in love or, you know, following his heart, not his head, and therefore jeopardises the entire mission. And then at the very end, kind of comes back into the fold and does things on the terms of the established spy, but also on his own terms in a way that he can still walk away at the end and have a life and not be part of that world. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Totally. And I guess just on your you wish it to be more grounded, I suppose then you probably need to, I don't know, he needs to get some measure of surgery or something to look exactly the same. It's just it's just so goofy that... Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I agree. Is, I think there's probably, I'm sure if we went to Reddit, you know, there's probably some sort of statistical analysis that, yeah, out there with however many billions of people on earth, there is someone who actually looks identical to you. There's actually like a website or an Instagram feed or something and they actually have these people that do look similar. And I saw a TV show recently that my kids were obsessed with where they actually had people who'd found each other from all over the world and they looked incredibly similar and experts had to basically ask them questions, check their DNA and all sorts of things to see which people were most similar. Like I guess they were called something like um, not twins but twins. And it was interesting. I did find it fascinating though that this show would have chosen the best possible not twin combinations for the sake of making a really good show and of those – six different couples, only one actually looked like they were twins. Like a few of them looked quite different to each other, I thought. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think perhaps just having, say, your ears tucked back or your nose trimmed or whatever would be an easy way of doing it. Um, mm, mm. But, yeah, perhaps on that note, speaking of uh, crazy outfits and costumes, should we jump to the jackal? Well, just just before we do, because this will be something that's, common about both just just Ben rate the accents in the assignment for me because we get a lot of them yeah look I don't know I, I feel kind of torn because Ben Kingsley to me is an actor who I respect so much but I think for most of his career he works at 20% more than he needs to <laughs> get everyone goes along with it it's a bit like Daniel Day-Lewis who's won three Oscars and is the most uh crowned Academy Award winner of all time everyone loves him a lot. And I always find he's always about 20% or 10% too much. And Ben Kingsley's kind of similar. Um, is he doing an Israeli accent? I think he is. Well, that's certainly the background of his character, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, I, I think he's a Mossad so, agent, right? I mean, Ben Kingsley has a suite of accents that he likes to, to, to deploy. And this is certainly one of them. Uh, well, what do you think? I mean, Donald Sutherland's just doing him. He's fine. What, if, what about uh, the Colors the Jackal accent by our lead character? Ah, terrible. Just terrible. <laughs> just awful. And his wig. It's like a sort of SNL sketch or something, isn't it? He's got like a, this long jerry curl wig thing. Not jerry curl, like ringlets. Like a weird Al Yankovic hair. Yes. As well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like, he's like, he almost looks like when he is dressed, when Aiden Quinn is dressed as Carlos, he looks like he might be in like a Weird Al parody, you know, like just because of his like beret <laughs> and his wig and his goatee and his and his very silly accent. Um, I mean, and then I guess with Ben Kingsley, I think you're right. Like he he does like to dial it up, but and you say maybe he goes twenty percent too far. But the thing is, when he goes two hundred percent too far. He's awesome, like in Sexy Beast. So it must be hard for him to modulate uh, yeah. how much is too much Ben Kingsley. Yes, he's Sexy Beast I love and I think he's the best thing about Sexy Beast. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends also on the delivery as well. In this film, he delivers his lines seemingly intentionally quite flatly. Mm. So that to me then kind of like mitigates mm. an accent that's a bit too on the nose because it right. doesn't feel like they're acting too much. I think when someone leans into a hard performance and does a big accent, that's when it becomes overwhelming. 
Totally, totally. Okay, accents out of ten. Just, just you're gonna give them a three out of ten. Yeah, three. Three's good. Okay, you? Me too. Yeah, three. Three out of ten for the accents. All right. So let's switch lanes and switch accents to our detailed review of the Jackal, Gabe. What did and didn't grind your gears, and was it a better version of the same concept than the assignment? Well, I mean, you've totally thrown me, Ben, with this classic thing. Now I just don't know what to believe. So is the Jackal a classic? I would say no, but it's very entertaining. Can you be a guilty pleasure and a classic? Because that's my predicament here. Because this film, I find this film like a bad takeaway meal. I enjoyed it at the time, but I feel a bit dirty afterwards. I feel a bit bloated. Um, the film has so many flaws and... And some, on some occasions, it wears those flaws on its sleeve, but I still like it. I still like it. I think it's a movie that's got better with time or at least more easy to enjoy with time or something. I think probably when it came out, people were tough on it. We'll find out later with the reviews. But I think it certainly feels like years, you know, 20, 23, 24 years later, you know, it's... It's just kind of like it's like a fun, dumb movie that also tries really hard. I mean, you have like Sidney Poitier in there. You know what I mean? Um, Sidney Poitier has acted in like 20 films in his entire life or something and this is one of them. <laughs> I think it's his last film. That's so good. <laughs> um, like it's quite bizarre. Like he has these stretches in his career where he doesn't act for like a decade on screen and then he comes back and does The Jackal. It's quite bizarre. And I actually really like him in this film and – you can just see the logic of this, right? You drop someone of his credibility into the movie and just elevates it, or that's the intention. In this case, I actually think that works. But it is quite strange to see this classical actor who just, to me on screen, has so much kind of um, gravitas mm. juxtaposed with the Irish accent, speaking of accents, ah. of... <laughs> of Dicky, of our yeah, Dicky Gears of Richard Gear, Declan Mulqueen. Although I think with him as well, they've gone for very classy casting. And then same with Diane Venora. You know, Richard Gear, Diane Venora, Sydney Poitier. I mean, drop Bruce Willis from that. And if someone said to me those three actors, I would not go. Oh yeah, that's going to be a kind of like dopey action thriller about the Jackal. I'd be like, oh, that's going to be some sort of like, you know, Touchstone Pictures proudly presents. Some kind of, yeah, you know. You know the reason why, though, right. because this is the casting of uppers and downers. This is the window of time where it appeared that Bruce Willis was falling asleep a bit on screen. He's your downers, and so they've got to add a few uppers to try and <laughs> equal uh, the film out. Is this a, a thing that you've invented, uppers, like the, the casting of uppers and downers? No, it just, came, it just came to me just then, but you think about it, right? I like it. I like it. I like it. When was The Sixth Sense? That was around the time, 98? So this is the part where people started making. No, this was was it? Wait, was this before? No, this was uh, yeah. This was definitely before the Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense ninety nine, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was around this time though that Bruce Willis started appearing to be a bit kind of like sleepy on screen. And at first, for the first decade, you sort of interpreted it as being a very contained, you know, um, withheld performance with a sort of quite smouldering intensity or an internal conflict. And then after these films came out that he made in Bulgaria, where he turned up on set for two days and shoot, you know, 12 of these movies a year, people started thinking, actually, maybe he's just sort of like not kind of like putting the same energy he did with Die Hard with his crazy, you know, on-screen vitality. What do you think? 
I mean, sure. I think I think it works in this film for a cool cucumber. I think. Oh, in the in the jackal. Look, I think it looks like he's having a reasonably good time in the jackal. But yeah, I mean, this was after. Like what, North? That Remember that movie North? And, oh, he was in that, speaking of erotic thrillers, he was in one of 1990s best or worst, probably worst, Colour of Night where you got to see his uh, little Bruce Willis, his little Willis. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, look, um, I think it looks like he's having a pretty fun time. He gets to wear a lot of wigs and the wig work is better than the assignment. And he gets to do a lot of accents or so do like play different characters, you know, different sexualities uh, to varying degrees of success, I guess. Um, but I don't know. It is just funny just seeing the, the sort of classiness mixed with the, yeah, wh- what's the opposite of classy? Classless. <laughs> nah, it's not really the word I'm looking for, you know. Unsophisticated? Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, lacking in nuance? Yeah, sure, sure, totally. Um, okay, you just put, put, brought up a few points there. Can I just put a few pins in these to okay. hit them off one by one? Let's start with... Pin away. Let's Yeah. Let's start with um, just the casting of the role and the opportunity. Now, if you're an actor and you've got a chance to star in any film where you get to wear a mask or a wig or put on accents and transform, right? I'm thinking James McAvoy in Split. Oh, yes. I'm thinking uh, Nicole Kidman wearing a fake nose in playing Virginia Woolf or whoever it was. Um, <laughs> or whoever it was, sure. She won an Oscar. Yep. I can't recall which movie it was for, but you know that was a thing. Like it was such a thing that was parodied on many comedy programs. Like the idea of uh, wearing an outfit or a costume or acting like a certain personality to win an Oscar. In fact, sure. I think we're both thinking of Tropic Thunder, where there's a whole gag about you know trying to win an Oscar and play certain characters. Mm-hmm. And if you're Bruce Willis, and it's like right, like an opportunity to basically. Put on a fake nose, put on a fake hairpiece, uh, which is good because it was kind of balding anyway at that point. So it's like, this is great. I can kind of wear it as part of the character. And just as a chameleon transform from character to character on screen. And it's in an action movie. And you're with, say, uh, in this case, Richard Gere. So you got like another credible actor across the table from you. It's a pretty tempting proposition, I think. And you're doing a true life story on paper anyway. This is not. I mean, this is interesting, actually, or maybe we should loop back to that, but this guy's called the Jackal, but this has nothing to do with Carlos the Jackal whatsoever. No, it didn't. I think uh, it deviated so much from the source material that the original author of the biography just said, look, this isn't anything like this at all, so take my name off it. And essentially they just took the name, the Jackal, which I think at that stage in popular culture had sort of become identifiable as, you know, a chameleon terrorist that was once based on that particular person but then became sort of like a moniker for, you know, one of the, one of the scariest terrorists at all time that can just sort of, yeah. like in a movie, vanish into a crowd. Yeah. and I mean, I've seen the original The Day of the Jackal, I think 1973 or something, um, and it's also not much to do with Carlos the Jackal but this has just as little to do with it as either. They just made shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I, I don't think the audience in 1997, 98 really cared that much about oh, it no, anyway. Totally. And I don't think, you know, many people turned up to the movies thinking, oh, excellent, I want to see a really authentic portrayal of the <laughs> true-life character, Carlos the Jackal. But let's go back to you mentioned a few things like he played different characters, uh, different outfits and whatever. I mean, just Bruce Willis himself, do we like him on screen in this performance? Is he doing... 
a good execution of this type of character compared to what we saw in the assignment? Uh, yeah, I think it's much better. Like, and maybe it's because he gets to play more characters. Like in the assignment, you know, he's got to dress up and be one guy. This doesn't have a, a a sort of plot mechanism where the character has to dress up like the other guy. It's not like Richard Gere is going undercover as Bruce Willis, you know. Um, so it's pretty fun every time, you know, they have a scene where they'll be at an airport and the camera will pan up and, oh, there's Bruce Willis and he's got long blonde hair. Or the camera will pan up and, oh, there's Bruce Willis and he's got like a Fu Manchu moustache. <laughs> uh, or pan up, oh, there's Bruce Willis and now he's a fat guy. Like... If, if nothing else, that's entertaining. <laughs> that's entertainment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and what I love about it is it's in an era uh, where you can do those movies and people can go through airports with paper passports and just try and convince someone across the counter at passport control that they're the real person, that they they say they are on the passport. Or you can go through train stations, uh, you can go to gas stations and we don't have the face recognition that we actually have on our phones right now. So people can't profile and track you. It was a magical time for storytelling, much like that's right. pre-mobile phones where that's right. you could have these stories that wouldn't just be solved in two seconds using the internet, facial recognition, some database of, you know, DNA. People could like have a journey. And I miss those days of storytelling because now it feels like Every movie you do these days is like Michael Mann's Black Hat where you try and jazz it up but really if in the real world it'd just be someone sitting at a monitor and a screen just trawling through data. Are you suggesting that Chris Hemsworth's portrayal of a hacker is less likely to be, uh, you know, handsome, funny, buff Chris Hemsworth and more, I don't know, who do we say? Uh, DJ Qualls. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I am. Yeah. Statistically. Yeah, but. Statistically. But we just talked about wanting, you know, uh, a degree of eroticism in movies, and I don't want to see DJ Quell's bang on screen. I mean. Which one is he? Is he the guy from Road Trip? Yeah, yeah. And look, I'm, I'm actually sorry, DJ Quell's. That's actually a mean thing to say. If you ever make a movie as part of the next cycle of. Fuckfest 5000, I'm there. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, we talked before about, um, you know, costumes and accents. This film does something quite daring where they have Bruce Willis, uh, and when I say daring, I mean daring for a mainstream American movie. They don't have any nudity at all. Mm-hmm. They don't have any sex. It's all about violence and some of it's pretty graphic for a movie at the time. Like uh, we'll get back to the Jack Black scene, but a sort of scene they wouldn't show in a film now made with these stars at this budget. But the bit that surprised me when I first saw the movie, not for the worse or the better, just I was surprised to be in this movie, was when he plays the gay character and he seduces the gay congressman, I think it is, uh, with the intent of getting access to a security pass and so on. Um, that was, I thought, pretty brave, pretty courageous at the time, although there are issues with the depiction in many respects. And I think at the time, Glad had issues with it too because it was potentially demonising gay characters on screen. But watching this now 23 years later or so, what did you think? Um, well, there's a funny bit of trivia about uh, that, uh, which is on IMDb, where it says... Um, Bruce Willis asked for the scene to be 
reshot where he kills the gay man. So it was obvious that he was being killed due to the fact that he knew too much rather than because he was gay, which sort of, I guess, speaks to the, I don't know, attitudes at the time. Um, so we saw the film we see, the scene that we see in the movie now is what Bruce Willis wanted? Yes. Like they actually agreed to reshoot it? Yes, yeah, I, I, I presume so. I mean... Yeah, look, this sort of... What do you set up for our audience, actually, what happens to remind them as to why he's killing that guy? Oh, well, he seduces this bloke um, and I... I mean, I guess it hasn't aged particularly well because of, like, the the very hard gay coding of the... You know, it's like, will people understand that Bruce Willis is gay unless he acts incredibly... How would you describe, you know, like... Uh, well, just, I mean, the fact that they meet at a gay bar and... Gay, Bruce Willis is acting kind of camp and... Yeah, that's right. That's right. They, they, they have to, yeah, sort of code it very broadly, you know. Um, um, anyway, so he seduces this guy and he steals like a, a, a pass or whatever and then the guy comes home and he's Bruce Willis is just eating Chinese food, acting very, uh, let's say, less flamboyantly. Ugh, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, you're totally right. Yeah, that's totally it. And then he, the guy whom he's seduced to, is you know looking forward to a nice weekend in. I guess is quite surprised by his change in demeanour. So Bruce Willis shoots him. I think at the time there was also a- no, 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 no. You missed out the key detail where the guy, the gay character who owns the house, looks at the TV screen. Oh, that's right. And there's a photograph, and that's I think the part that Bruce Willis probably insisted was included because right. then it becomes okay. clear that Bruce Willis has to kill him because he knows too much not because he's an expendable gay character. I guess I just assumed that it was also he was just acting like a completely different person. But, yeah, totally. I mean, 100%. I think at the time as well there was a, a small measure of controversy because doesn't don't they have a kiss on screen? Yeah, they do. And that's why I thought it was pretty courageous for a Hollywood movie at the time. So I actually thought that was actually a positive thing because it was showing a gay depiction on screen that was rare in Hollywood movies. And also, too, to have Bruce Willis, who's, you know, at the time was a man's man action hero to uh, act in a, in a betrayal like that I thought was actually pretty gutsy. So I think they had the right intentions in making the movie, but perhaps some people who were affected by the betrayal just didn't see it that way. So I don't think it was a terribly bad portrayal of gay characters on screen, uh, but perhaps it was misguided in some respects. Yeah, totally. Look, it just... It just altogether hasn't aged well. Also, the way that their kiss is edited, I don't want to make assumptions about what Bruce Willis was uh, willing to do, but they cut to a shot behind Bruce Willis for the actual lip lock, and I wonder if he didn't actually do it. I think that that was definitely for the sake of having both the kiss in the movie without the audience being, quote, exposed, um, unquote, to that scene because the audiences would have been less tolerant at the time, particularly for an action movie. But I wouldn't have been surprised if that was also a reason too. Like it could have been either one of those or both of those as a reason as to why they would shoot it behind his heads because they could have been basically three centimetres apart from each other's lips and it appears like a kiss while shot from behind. Mm, mm, fair enough, fair enough. And what about our friend uh, Dickie Gear here in action man mode? Uh, I mean, we've left out the most obvious guy. We've, we've spoken about accents and stuff, and this is up there with Brad Pitt's accent uh, in that film with Harrison Ford. I think it's The oh, Devil The Devil's Own. Or, no, The Devil's Own. The Devil's Own. own. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So 
I've got questions, Gabe. I've got questions. <laughs> okay, so I want, I want to like fire off three quick questions at you and then I want you to hit them. So why make the character Irish? Why cast Richard Gere to do that Irish accent? And what would have happened had you not had the character being an IRA ex-terrorist? Like was just because they need to have a terrorist after a terrorist and it made sense for it to choose a really obvious one from a nation known for terrorism such as Northern Ireland? Well, okay. Let's let's take the last part first, Ben. Um, you want a terrorist to catch a terrorist. Let's just say that's your idea. Now, you've got a problem, right? Like how do you make- Hey, by the way, by the way, yeah. we haven't said this for the whole film, but that actually is the best way of capturing the pitch for both these movies, except- the first one doesn't have that in the same way, but I do like that as a pitch. Well, Ben, actually, perhaps it does. It depends on how you uh, how you view the American military. Like, you know, that's a conversation for our other political podcast. Um, <laughs> but you're right. In this case, so they 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 want a terrorist to catch a terrorist. Oh, do they say that Richard Gere's character has seen him? Maybe that's it, but that's a prop of nothing, I guess, you know. I don't know why they added that part because I don't think it was necessary, but apparently Richard Gere is the only person who had seen the Jackal without makeup and could recognise him through makeup as well. Like they shared a look. Right. You know, and which is a huge stretch in itself because if this guy is the ultimate chameleon, how would trusting a an IRA terrorist from 20 years ago who saw him, I mean, really? Is that the best we've got? But go on. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to pick a terrorist. So you need a terrorist who, you know, I guess comes from an era or a country where their terrorism is arguably more, I mean, I could say justified. Palatable? Yeah, palatable. So, you know, the IRA, totally, like, you know, you can you can sympathise with the the, the Irish in that circumstance, you know. So the, basically you need him to be an anti-hero. Yeah, that's right. Bordering on a hero. So he has to be basically a, quote, good, unquote, terrorist. Yeah, that's right. We can agree that the, you know, British occupation of uh, the troubles and all that, you know, the, the, the Brits can be the villains there. Like, fuck them, you know. So he doesn't therefore come across as all bad. It's not like you're like, and the only person who can catch Bruce Willis as the jackal is Osama Bin Laden. People probably wouldn't go for that. Totally. Might watch that movie though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a movie. <laughs> so, so yeah. I can't exactly recall what they say. Like, do they do they even set him up as like a really good terrorist? Like he never, like he'd kill he'd kill soldiers but never women and children. You know that like classic hitman thing? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what always makes, um, I think it's a line they use in Den of Thieves, which is a bit of a heat light heist movie where they shoot some cops at the start and they go, we're cop killers now, but they still only kill other suits, as in like other military people or uniform people. Yeah, they don't- it's like it's like a, it's like a sort of theme. You C- kill civilians other are off people. off limits. Yeah, know, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I don't think they do, but if they do, it wouldn't surprise me. But it's a really good shorthand to saying it's someone who is bad but not that bad. Yeah, and so I guess that makes more sense. Like. If they wanted to make him American, like, oh, then he's got to be a domestic terrorist. And again, it's like you're not going to break out Timothy McVeigh to go and fight the jackal, you know? Yeah, totally. I actually think your best reference point here is a film that came out a year later, and that is The Rock. Oh, yeah. I mean, The Rock is basically what happened if they actually captured James Bond and he's sat in jail for 20 years and they basically released him in the company of Nicolas Cage because they need him to try and do something that only he can do. 
Now, in that film, I think they define Sean Connery's character as a good terrorist in the sense that he was also in the same thing, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Well, he was just he James was an, Bond. Like, he was James Bond, right, but he didn't actually know, kill innocent people. No, no. And he, he committed uh, espionage crimes. He'd, stole, he'd stolen the microfish that has who actually killed JFK, you know. Um, so... I mean, maybe they put it in because you're right. Like, you could have just as easily made this movie and been like, he's just a he's just a CIA guy who went off off reservation, and they had to lock him up because he knows too much, you know. So he doesn't even have to have been responsible for a current and ongoing, uh, you know, from a current and ongoing you know terrorist organization or whatever, or you know, allegedly or supposedly or whatever. However, the fuck you want to call the IRA there. Maybe it's just Dickie Gear wanted to do an accent. Maybe he just came in with some big ideas. Like, you know, they sat him down. Great to have you on board, Richard. You know, uh, really excited for you to play this character. He's like, yep, haven't done an Irish accent yet. Make that happen. Yeah, possibly, because you hear so many stories where actors feel like they're being pigeonholed in relation to a, a breakout role. For him it was Pretty Woman. And it's like, okay, I want to do the opposite of that. <laughs> Make me a working-class Irish terrorist. That's a long way from the character I played in Pretty Woman. And so potentially they accommodated that. Mm. I guess I put to you, Gabe, when we ask the question, is this movie or the other movie the best execution of this common premise, you go back to what we think would be what we'd do and maybe the the best execution is the, is the third unknown, unmade film, and that is you say, okay, you want to catch a spider with a spider, you want to catch a terrorist with a terrorist, uh, a, we find a way to actually incorporate a natural accent and we just somehow push past Dickie's, you know, big hunger for the Irish accent. And we say, well, we have, say, a retired um, national intelligence person like Sean Connery's age who comes out of retirement, right? Or what if, like, a good example would be this. Imagine you had Brad Pitt's character from Seven, mm-hmm. right? And I want to step on our possible remake reboot, uh, but... You could have someone like that who has lost their family to this terrorist, like Brad Pitt lost his wife to Kevin Spacey's serial killer, and he's jailed because he did something like, you know, react in a negative way by killing people or something like that. And so they bring this guy out because they need this guy, this spider, to catch the other spider, but at the same time the great risk is that Richard Gere's character would kill the jackal before they've got a chance to prosecute him or something like that. Right. That could be a way you could do it without having to have a terrorist catch a terrorist. You know, basically, you mentioned someone who went off reservation. Same sort of idea. They went rogue in some ways or retired under bad circumstances and they come out. I think they make him a terrorist in this movie because the theory is Sidney Poitier has to keep on a short leash. He can't risk Richard Gere running away. And also, perhaps it gives him a chance of redemption. So it's basically meant to mean that oh, yeah. this anti-hero becomes a hero and that's his journey in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think filmmakers out there should just, when they're writing characters, just keep in mind that 23 years after the movie is made, someone might be having to record a podcast about it and don't want to have to, you know, get into the murky discussion about who is and who isn't a terrorist and, you know, uh, I, I don't I don't want to insult people whose lives are affected by the troubles, you know. So just... Just, just, just keep it simple. Keep it simple. Help us help yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. Help, help me not make terrible blunder into terrible mistakes. Um, uh, okay, speaking of mistakes, 
Tell me, what do you think about Jack Black's mistakes and the choices he makes in that scene? And I want you to set up for our podcast listeners who may have forgotten that particular scene or haven't seen it. Walk the audience through what happens in what I think is one of the most violent depictions of an action movie in the 90s. Wow, okay, fair. Um, So Bruce Willis hires uh, Jack Black in one of his, you know, earlier earlier roles. Um, Who, by the way, is just so on brand for Jack Black. Oh, he's very full Jables or whatever, sure. Yep. Um, and he is tasked with building – he's not building the gun, is he? He's building the tripod that supports the gun. Is that right? The tripod that supports the gun, I think the mechanism yeah, as the, well that the, makes the, it spin the, around, like the, the calibration system and the uh, – what would you call it? Like the – The aiming system? The, the the ball head. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah. And what a sucker. He has a stylus and stuff. Steve Jobs would not be impressed by this shit. Um, the, Gabe, so, the best stylus is your index finger. I've seen yeah, those right. videos by Steve Jobs. Exactly. Um, so then uh, he delivers it and Bruce Willis makes him um, run across a paddock and then Bruce Willis makes him hold out his arm. Is he is he holding something in his hand? I can't exactly. Oh, yeah, he is. I think you've got to go back a little bit to say that Jack Black delivers the tripod, but they want to negotiate, renegotiate on the price. Yeah, true. See what he, this, so this guy's built a tripod for what is basically a cannon. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't think that Bruce Willis comes across as particularly affable. So not the sort of guy that you perhaps want to, like, change the terms of the agreement. No. And Jack Black asks for, like, four times as much. Yeah. Like it's quite a steep increase in price. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know. Uh, and then, sorry, so with that, that's the background to how we get to the shooting range. So go on. He, he sort of ends up holding his arm out as Bruce Willis presses the the button where we where we get to finally see this thing open up and uh, I guess it like blows Jack Black's arm off. Um, yeah. So he's, he's either aiming for the cigarette packet that Jack Black's holding as a target. Because he's like it's off by a degree. Yeah. And a degree over, you know, 400 metres is significant. And he blows Jack Black's arm off. I think it's implied that he was actually aiming for the target. But basically Jack Black gets his comeuppance because by not making the calibration accurate enough, he loses his arm in the testing process. And it is just blown off the shoulder. Like it is like an explosion. It's interesting that you recall this as one of the sort of most violent, I guess maybe most... It's it's very memorable, sort of most violent sort of nineteen nineties mainstream movie moments. Um, um, I'll tell you why it's naturalistic. So unlike say an Aliens movie, right? And some of those movies are all of them rated USR or MA fifteen Australia. The films, those films aren't grounded. The stakes are grounded in a sense that so they're trying to fight for their lives, but they're fighting aliens. I think this one was like one of those movies. Like it has the same tone as one of my favourite films of all time, In the Line of Fire, which was, I think, about five years before. Right. But In the Line of Fire, which dealt with assassins and stuff, didn't have the same sort of blood gore as this. It just, to me, it was sort of like, it just stood out for the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is like basically, what, a mainly kind of chase movie, right? There's barely any shooting, and if it happens, it's pretty discreet. But this just sort of like jumped off the screen as being pretty dramatic. Right. And given that you're setting up that he's about to try and kill a prominent person, this gives you a preview as to how that's going to look. <laughs> well, yeah. And and to be fair, you're talking about like 
mainstream American action movies. I mean, Funny Games came out the same year as this. We're not saying that's my point, though. It's just I'm just comparing it to equivalent movies, and that's why I mentioned earlier. I don't think they'd make this an R-rated action movie today. Like either to make it like John Wick, where it's consistently violent the whole way. Or that excise this one scene because the film is otherwise pretty tame. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So like in John Wick, when he slides a knife into a guy's eye in number three, very graphically on screen, you're like, yeah, that's fine because I've already seen him like stab fifty thousand people before this. But this, this, this within the context of the movie, I, I, yeah, it's I'm picking up what you're putting down. It's isolated. I mean, yeah, yeah. You take you could basically trim, a, you know, a second or two of this, or just sort of show Jack Black more without showing the arm. And you pretty much get the same impact of the movie uh, and it'd be one mm. rating or classification below and less impactful mm. but still feel like pretty tense. So that, that's why it surprised me. It just felt like, oh, because normally they would they, they take out nudity, they take out sex, they take out coarse language except for one occasional use of fuck and otherwise, you know, it's pretty strictly adhered to. So that's why I was surprised by it. Mm. Mm. I mean, it sets up Bruce Willis's canon as being so awesome that, man, you really must think that he's actually not that great a terrorist assassin if he can't complete his mission with that thing. Like yeah. when he fails at the end of the movie, it's like, dude, how did you fail with that? I know. Although did you think, though, okay, back to this uh, being a good execution of common premise, did you think, though, this plan was just unnecessarily complicated? Like the idea of having what appears to be a cannon, you know, parked in a minivan near this presentation, this speech, it seems like there'd be easier ways of doing this and obviously it makes it less cinematic to do it. But don't you think it feels like did he have to be that far away? Did the gun have to be that big? Did it have to be in a minivan and controlled by remote control? I mean, I'm no expert in counterterrorism, but I'm sort of thinking that he's adding many complicating factors to this. And given that this guy can basically enter major buildings uh, in a disguise and so on, I think there'd be would have been an easy way to do this, but obviously it would have been less cinematic. Yeah, like why couldn't you just you know Lee Harvey Oswald this shit and put yourself across the road in the book suppository and shoot them? Or in the line of fire. <laughs> Wait, in the line of fire to me is a great example. But are you saying in the line of fire is more or less complicated? He he has a plastic gun made. Okay, so in the line of fire, he has a plastic gun made with little bullets uh, hidden in a rabbit's paw keyring. And he has to go to the dinner, doesn't he? Yeah. And the plan is he's going to stand up at the table. What was his escape, escape plan, by the way? Uh, because He doesn't have one, I think, because assassins should be willing to die. But he was a, Isn't that like his thing? He wasn't a gun for hire, though. Wasn't this something personal? No, like yeah. He like he's, 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 a, he's a lunatic in uh, okay. the- Okay, so- if you're a lunatic character, then it makes more sense that you're happy to sort of like die. Uh, what I think they call it um, police, sui- police suicide, death by suicide. In that, um, yeah, sure. Suicide by cop. Suicide by cop, where you expect to get shot at the end, but you achieve your mission. So I think because we never actually see it happen, I think that's what he intends to do in that movie, which makes more sense. So you actually get up closer to his target. Um, if you're a, a gun for hire, which Bruce Willis is, you don't want to get caught. You want to get a, make a clean getaway. I just would have thought you gave the example before of, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald. That just seems comparatively easier. Yeah, totally. But, like, you're right. Maybe it's less cinematic, you know. It's it's not as involved. Um, and, like, watching that big big canon thing, you know, good times. Um, <clears throat> to, Richard Gere's character, he's a, he's a bomber, right? It's not like he's an expert on giant Gatling cannons. 
Yeah, I don't think they actually ever suggest he has a particular right. expertise in weaponry that's relevant to this. It's more just the fact that he would recognise him across the room. Right, right. Now, just on Richard Gere's accent, he's not the only character in this movie that does a ridiculous accent. Diane Venora, playing Valentina Koslova, she turns on one of the most over-the-top Russian accents perhaps witnessed in film since John Malkovich's Teddy KGB in Rounders. Yeah, it is big, isn't it? It's like it's very cliche. It's like and the way she's dressed, it looks like she's walked off the set from a sketch comedy. Oh, it's great. You know, she's got the scar on her face. That's not enough. She's got the accent. That's not enough. She's like doing the very sort of cliche stoic Russian, you know, uh, never crack a smile thing. But spoilers, I have to say the movie suffers a little bit when she's killed off. Yeah, I agree. She's a different voice of reason in the room, isn't she? And because of her background, uh, you kind of question if there's some sort of alternative motive that she has where she's running her own little sideshow terrorism scam going on. So I agree. It's a shame we lose her because she adds a bit of complexity to the various sort of uh, evolving allegiances between the characters. Yeah, yeah. And even though it seems like I'm knocking her performance, like hacking a bit of shit on it. It is one of those funny things where it's like, you know, she's going for something, it's big, but then when it's gone, you miss it. You miss it. (laughs) You know, you miss it. And kids, like, what can they replace it with? Nothing. They get Matilda May who sort of turns up as Richard Gere's ex-girlfriend or something or other. You know, it's not the same. It's not the same. No, I agree. Now, we should probably start... uh bring this to an end with that combined review, Gabe. Any notable uh, similarities, be it a coincidence or rip-off between these two movies? Well, I mean, they're both about a terrorist called the, the Jackal. Yeah, I, nothing else jumped out to me as being particularly similar. I mean, there's no example where perhaps, you know, Richard Gere is sending forth his girlfriend to seduce the Jackal or anything like that. I think they, besides that basic concept, they don't seem to share any similarities. Um, which film do you think is aged better? <laughs> Well, I would say The Jackal because it feels like the assignment hasn't aged as it is stuck there in 1997. <laughs> I agree. Okay. Um, plot holes and missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers have done better with the same high concept? We've mentioned a few of them already, but anything jump out as a glaring plot hole and something that could be corrected? I mean, it's kind of funny a movie where someone is so identical to another terrorist that no one's brought that up before. Do you know what I mean? Like in his whole life where this is one of the most famous terrorists in the world who would have been plastered all over the news in the assignment for, say, the Libyan petroleum embassy hijacking or or the Paris bombing or whatever, that no one's ever watched the TV and gone, huh, it looks like you with a beard. Yeah, totally. Like he's totally surprised that he's been tapped on the shoulder for this mission and no one said, oh, look, that's an unfortunate similarity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't you think, I mean, yeah, like it's pre the ubiquity of the internet or whatever, but bloody hell, that had newspapers. They've had, they've had TV news. Like I think you would know if you looked exactly the same as, you know, if I open the paper and it's like here are the, terrorist responsible for 9-11 and one of them looks a lot like you, Ben, I'd be like, huh, that looks a lot like you, Ben. Yeah, totally. Like in 2021, I'd be making $15 to do a little cameo birthday song to someone dressed up as that character. Like I'd be (laughs) actually, I'd have a whole side hustle going on based on my similarity. Ah, yeah, that's right. Um, That would be weird, Uh, a side hustle based on, you know, you dressing up as... I don't know, one of the September 11 terrorists. I don't know who your clientele would be. 
but you know, don't get between a man and his uh, uh, work. You know what I mean? So, I think you've just basically cancer cultured me in an <laughs> alternative reality. It's uh, <laughs> in a multiverse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, for listeners out here, Ben actually looks exactly like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, uh, I mean, that's and, unfortunate. And, and that's unfortunate. And he looks exactly like him. You know that photo of him after he'd been captured? Wild hair, mustache, very hairy chest. That, no matter that's how. That's Ron Jeremy. Be, that's Ron Jeremy. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's true. Okay, here's the movie. Ron Jeremy, although he's, you know, obviously a shitbag, um, has to he's go on the cover. Yeah. Um, and that's how he gets redemption. Um, and, he, and he can only take one weapon with him. The one between his legs. Yeah, that's right. Hey, they're not going to need to train him like they do in the assignment. Um, terrible. Um, um, so, I mean, that, that that stood out of me as one of those things. You, you, look, you buy it in the movie, but it's a big leap, isn't it? Like, It is. It is. All right, let's jump to our trivia, mate, and our awards. Uh, so let's start with uh, behind the scenes, little did you know. So we've actually touched on a few issues that we have with this film and some of this trivia will answer them for you, Gabe. So uh, this is quite funny. After the filming of the movie of um, The Jackal, both Bruce Willis and Richard Gere reportedly vowed to never work with each other again. Uh, <laughs> of course. But the but here's the irony. They actually filmed most of their scenes separately. So when they'd actually <laughs> would catch up with each other, they'd actually say, how's your movie going when they'd meet up because they just never actually worked with each other, which is quite weird because what's their issue there? What's the problem? Well- <laughs> Without stepping on the which poster was better, it the Jackal does have one of those posters where, you know, one actor's name, Bruce Willis's, is on the left and Richard Gears is on the right but ever so slightly higher. So you got to imagine that there was a lot of ego kicking around on this set as to, like, who who's the who's the lead? Yeah, totally. Whose movie is this, you know? Totally. Now, you, we asked questions about accents before. Um, I'm so disappointed to know that both Richard Gere... And Diane Venora worked with language coaches to what? develop their accents. Fuck, fire yep. them. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> no, terrible, right? Wow. <laughs> um, how do you feel this was Sidney Poitier's final appearance in a theatrical film? This is? Yeah. Wow. This is what he went out on, huh? Yep. Well. Final movie. What What had he done before? He should have gone out on sneakers. Oh, yeah, that would have been a much that's, better way to yeah, a, finish up. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned earlier about the controversy about the original film Day of the Jackal, and it was actually the director, Fred Zinnemann, before he died, fought Universal to change the title of the film to The Jackal because he didn't want to have basically the reputation of his movie tarnished anyway. So I can understand why because this film was a long, long way from that film. Yeah, yeah. Good luck though, mate. And <laughs> like, like they're going to do that. Yeah. Well, it, did, it It does actually still say it's based on a screenplay by him. Um, because, oh, sorry, a screenplay based on the novel by the author, Frederick Forsyth. So they couldn't quite escape the heritage there, which is unfortunate for those two creators. But right. I don't know. I don't think anyone's watching those two films back-to-back and complaining about one tarnishing the reputation of the other. I think there was 20 years between the movies. They're two very different beasts. Mm, true, true. All right. This is great, Gabe. Casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So this is who else could have ended up in these movies. So before you do the jackal, yep. the assignment, do you have any for the assignment? No, do you? Okay. Yeah, literally anyone. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Uh, oh, man. Terrible. Shots okay. fired. Sorry. Um, so guess what? Uh, Richard Gere was actually offered the role 
that Bruce Willis got, but he actually wanted to play the Irish terrorist instead. Okay. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Do you reckon this would have been a better movie if they flipped roles? I think it would have been an interesting movie because Bruce Willis is great in the role, but Richard Gere without makeup is very charismatic and, you know, he's definitely been portrayed in movies as a ladies' man. I think he could have physically transformed to those various characters, mm. but perhaps by being a bit too attractive from the start, it looked a bit goofy. Mm. Whereas Bruce Willis, I think, has a face and a hairline that when he wears those various outfits and stuff, he probably looks more different than his original, like his actual self. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's probably more fun to see Bruce Willis in a variety of wigs and stuff. Like, ha ha, look, he's fat now. Ha ha, he's got the curly hair. Uh, he's a hippie. Um, but I don't know if you've ever seen the film Internal Affairs. It's this Mike Figgis movie from the 90s. Richard Gere plays the villain in that. Fuck, he's great in it. I kind of like to see Richard Gere play more villains. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, well, speaking of casting, uh, Sean Connery, Liam Neeson and Matthew McConaughey all turned down roles. doesn't say who they turned down in particular, which characters, but would these films have been better versions with Sean Connery, Liam Neeson or Matthew McConaughey? And I did actually reference Liam Neeson earlier in relation to playing characters with a certain set of skills and Sean Connery playing a similar character in The Rock. I mean, Sean Connery as the terrorist, he would have been great, right? But I would, I'd question his accents. <laughs> totally, exactly. Well, he would have just done it with his Scottish accent and said he was Irish and no one would give a shit. It's funny these IMDb lists, you know, because for the Jackal, uh, they have uh, Richard Dean Anderson, Alec Baldwin, Jeff Bridges, Gary Busey, Kevin Costner, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tommy Lee Jones, Michael Keaton, Liam Neeson, Ron Perlman, Dennis Quaid, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stephen Seagal, Sylvester Stallone, Patrick Swayze were considered for Declan Mulqueen. But it's like, surely not. Like, in no universe do you go, look, Arnold Schwarzenegger's passed, let's try Richard Dean Anderson, and if he says no, we'll go to Kevin Costner. And remind our listeners as to who Richie is because he's not the person you think <laughs> would be a Hollywood star at the time. Yeah, 1997, I think MacGyver was over by then. Totally, yeah. You know. Yeah. They didn't bring him back for the Stargate movie. <laughs> They're not going to put him in uh, The Jackal. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, we touched on marketing methodology, madness, and missteps in relation to changing the title. Um, so we should just jump to the box office game. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Which movie was the box office champ? I think we know the answer here. Have a guess, though, how little the assignment made. Uh, worldwide, less than 10 million bucks? Well, I don't even know if it got a wide release internationally. <laughs> it's not, not even reported. Yeah, it, it, that's right. Totally, that's right. So, Oh, wow, okay. So it made $333,000 domestically in the States and no reporting on the international box office. So not that good. Not yet. That's- so basically a turd. I mean, it would have cost at least 10 to make, I think, at the time with those international locations and, you know, Donald Sutherland's fee and Ben Kingsley was pretty hot then. So, yeah, not good. They would have saved money on the casting of their lead actor, but besides that, I'd say they'd be uh, not looking at any profit from that one. The Jackal, in comparison, cost 60 to make, did $159 million. Uh, does that surprise you? 
Um, That's worldwide. It did 54 domestically in the States plus 100 internationally, so 159 in total worldwide. I mean, it's it's more than I remember. From memory, I thought this wasn't a – I thought this was a flop, but I guess, no, it was – yeah. Huh. Same here. Yeah. Maybe because it cost 60 to make, barely made 54 domestically, it was defined as a flop. But Right, yeah. I recall it wasn't particularly – well appreciated by the critics, which we'll get to, and accordingly didn't do well at the box office either. So on that note, let's uh, jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Which movie impressed the critics, Gabe? Um, I'm going to say neither of these movies. Interestingly, the assignment scored 60% on the tomato meter with critics versus 23% for the Jackal. So, well, okay, the assignment better reviewed than I... I guess I thought it would have been. Yeah. And then with the audiences, uh, 62% of audiences appreciate the assignment but only scored 52% for the jackal. Right, right. Uh, Let's then, on that note, jump to the awards. So let's start with best title, Gabe. Um, I'm going to say the jackal. More evocative. The assignment feels like it could just be homework. (laughs) I agree 100%, nothing more to add. The jackal takes it. Best poster. What do you talk our listeners through each of these posters in IMDb? Okay, so we, as usual, we're just going off the first poster, like the splash image poster. We're not, we're not digging, we're not digging deep into the IMDb archives to. No, the one they released in uh, Slovenia. Okay, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the awesome Polish poster. Um, uh, so the assignment is, it is Aidan Quinn's head with a, a sort of targeting reticule around it. Donald Sutherland's head, great head of hair in this one, Donald Sutherland, with a targeting reticule. And then Ben Kingsley's head, much less hair, with a target around it. Three big floating heads with some sort of red-tinted, I guess, Moscow skyline, sort of like the, what's that, palace there? Anyway, not particularly memorable. And the jackal is uh, Richard Gere... Sort of standing there, and then Bruce Willis's big head, and he's wearing sunglasses, and this is the shadow of someone with a gun, and it's kind of all looks etched or something. What do you think, Ben? They're both shades of terrible. I mean, yeah, yeah. neither of these films give you much idea. And the weird part about the Jackal poster is that it shows Bruce Willis and Richard Gere's fuzzy faces, and then someone else holding a gun in the background, which makes no sense at all because clearly Bruce Willis, we know from the trailer, is the Jackal. So. Really bad poster. I think that's actually not the theatrical poster. Right. I'm pretty sure the theatrical poster had like um, more obvious crosshairs. Um, I guess you left out too where it has the jackal. I think you called it a reticule, which is like crosshairs. Oh, yep. There's a reticule across the title of the jackal as well. So hinting towards a sniper of some sort. But, yeah, Gabe, these are both lazy posters. Having just recently talked about what inspired poster we saw with The Descent, these are – Terrible. And um, don't give me any sense of anything other than, I guess, snipers and, in the assignment, international intrigue. T- tell me this, though, Ben. If with the Jackal poster you had actually had a range of Bruce Willis's on the poster, oh. so you had him with his blonde hair, you had him with his fat guy moustache, you had him with his Fu Manchu, would you have thought that would sell the movie better or would you think people would think it's a comedy? Yeah, like uh, Multiplicity with Michael Keaton or something like that. Great movie. <laughs> Hey, Steve. You know, it'd be quite cool if you actually had, say, a version of that done quite stylishly, like, say, Bruce Willis in the foreground, his face, and then, like, 
another another Bruce Willis behind him, but only half the face peering out from behind. Another half face peering out behind that. Mm. So it's kind of like a visual onion oh. with, you know, stony cold looks. That'd actually be quite cool. So you're saying it's execution dependent. The, the, the idea, if executed well, would work. But if it's just a whole bunch of him standing around like it's multiplicity, that's stupid as. I'm with you. Yeah, like like harpies are like, you know, like standing like back to back with their legs up. Awesome. And so smiling, you know, those romantic comedies. Awesome. Awesome. I would I would frame that poster. I would travel to America to get Bruce Willis to sign it seven times. Um <laughs> So we need a, a winner. Um they both suck. The winner is our idea. Okay, done. It's a it's a dead dead rubber for them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. the Bill Fleck Big Break Award named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Gabe, who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with the assignment? I mean, could you argue that Aidan Quinn got a? Yeah, I'd say he, it's not a big break, but like he, you know, he got a bump up. I'd say he got a huge break. He squandered it, or something went wrong, <laughs> which gets the next award. But I'd say Aidan Quinn for the assignment. How about the jackal? Um, I don't know. Did anyone get a big break here? J.K. Simmons. No. I mean, he's in it. He's more like, oh, hey, it's that guy, which is a good idea for an award. I don't know. Write that one down, Ben. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. Uh, how about the director, Michael Caden Jones? Okay. So what he? So before he'd done, or I guess he'd already. Rob Roy? He had done Doc Hollywood already in Rob Roy. So I guess, yeah, he'd probably already taken flight, hadn't he? Yeah. Hey, good for him for trying to bring back the erotic thriller in the 2000s, though, with Basic Instinct 2. You fucked it up, bro. <laughs> you ruined it for everyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Uh, are we looking at possibly – it's got to be the assignment. Yeah, Aiden Quinn. Yeah, okay. Give give it to him. Oh, what about the director of the assignment? What had he done? You talked about him earlier, Kristen oh, yeah. Dugay. Dug- I don't know how to Dugay. 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 Yeah, actually, I think – Okay, I would say he'd definitely be a contender because this was his big Hollywood break. He did Screamers in 95, though. What's that one? That's the, Is that the one with Peter Weller? Uh, like the- Yes. Oh, and he did the- Yes, it is. Oh, he did the, the, the sequels to Scanners. Great stuff. Great stuff. Isn't that Screamers or that's different again? No, Scanners. Scanners is different to Screamers. Come on, man. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, on. Screamers are the ones, are they the mechanical ones that live under the ground? Yeah. And they come at you like a sort of screaming lawnmower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nah, give it to Aiden Quinn. Aiden Quinn, okay. He'd like done. an award. All right. The Before They Were Famous Award or The Blink and You'll Miss Them, starting with the assignment. Uh, who do we have there? Any contenders? No, certainly not as good as um, our contenders for The Jackal. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't watching this film and went, wow, look, it's. No, nobody. Which sucks. I'd say, okay, there was, um, so uh, Sophie Onconido. Yeah, totally. Plays Jamaican yep. girl. So yep. um, I guess some people would recognise her from what's the most prominent work? Hotel Rwanda, Ace Ventura, After Earth, uh, Aeon Flux. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, lot, a lot of TV work as well. Yeah. Uh, there's J.K. Simmons, but I think he was probably more established by then. So Daniel Day Kim. I think he's- Daniel Day Kim's in it? Oh, uh, Yeah. So, and I mean, Jack Black could be a contender for this award, surely, right? Like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Like, this was right on the cusp there before he really. And he's so charismatic. All right, it's going to be Jack Black, okay? Yeah, okay. Done. All right, moving on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? 
Starting with the assignment. Ooh. Small or poorly written. I mean, so we can't yeah. say, well, I like Donald Sutherland in this. His role was too big. I mean, does it count as poorly written? I don't know. There's not much to it. I can't see any contenders, to be honest, that jump out. No. Uh, no. no. How about in The Jackal? I mean... I mean, I mean Diane Venora. Like I talked before, I, I feel she's a bit of a scene stealer. She's certainly a yeah. She's certainly a uh, yeah. A scene chewer. Yeah. I mean, for audiences that don't know her, if you watch Heat in 1995, where she plays Al Pacino's wife, and then you watch her in this film, she's unrecognisable and entirely different character, for better or worse. But yeah, okay, yeah, Gabe. I think uh, I think we'll give it to her. Okay, why not? Show stealer. The Mickey Rock Award. Who did make the most of their opportunities after appearing in? Let's start with the assignment. Aiden Quinn. I mean, yeah, he, Aiden Quinn he con- consistently uh, hired. Like, don't get don't get us wrong, Aiden. You you were in 154 episodes of one of those TV shows. You know, I sort of feel they try and make Aiden Quinn like they try and make other stars. Like they've had a go with yeah. a few Australian actors and stuff, where they just try and make them a hero. Yeah, and it just doesn't work after you know many attempts in huge franchise movies, and the audience just says, "Yep, I'm not really on board." No, that's right. That's right. Stick to just playing Brad Pitt's brother in Legends of the Fall. <laughs> uh, the winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top, either in front or behind of the camera? Uh, I would say. If I was the director of the assignment, Christian, I'd mm-hmm. be I'd be feeling pretty good. My film didn't make any money, no one saw it. But I look at the film as the finished product, I'd be happy with that. But then that's just an internal feeling that makes me feel good at nighttime. Right. I don't think it helped him for his career. Well, you what know, you if you'd done Scanners 2 and Scanners 3, the takeover, and Screamers, this probably felt like a bump up, you know, more sophisticated, you know. Yeah, true. Uh, globe-trotting uh, uh, actors of, you know, because after this he did like extreme ops, which is not. Yeah, it went, went pear-shaped after yeah, this. Yeah. Okay, how about it over on the Jackal there? Hmm, what do you reckon? Um, I mean, Michael Caden Jones, this would have to be one of his better films. Um, I don't think Bruce Willis, Richard Gere, Sydney Portier, Diane Venora can really look back at this as like one of their highlights. Uh, and certainly the original screenwriter of the uh, first film and the novelist aren't happy about it. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I'm struggling there as well. Um, I think we'd be looking at the director of the assignment, Christian Duguay. Okay. All right. Best dialogue award. Gabe, any favourite quotes that jump out? Hmm. For the assignment? Yeah. Can I help you out with one? Mm, yeah, yeah. When Jack Shaw says, the song says there must be 50 ways to leave your lover, make it 51. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, doesn't someone say at some point, don't think about cheating on your wife, thinking about it as fucking for your flag? <laughs> Did they actually say that? It was actually like just a piss take. <laughs> no, I think that's. I mean, I don't think. I don't think it's delivered as well as I just delivered it. Um, um, but you know. Um, it's, okay. How any others um, for the assignment? Not that yeah. I recall off the top of my head. No, not really memorable, is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Okay. Jumping across to the jackal. Hmm. This movie takes itself so seriously. You know, there's that stuff. I think it's almost the top memorable quote on The Jackal on IMDb where, you know, they're, they're Valentina, who's Diane Venora, is talking to Declan, Richard Gibb, and they're talking about the 
girlfriend or something and they're like, she's Basque and she's like, yeah, and like, they say Basque live by their vendetta. If they hate someone, it's to the death. It's the same when they love. And it's like, turn it up, turn it up. <laughs> it's so, so, so self-serious. You, you love it, you love it. So we've got nothing, is that right? No winner? Um, well. Oh, I guess you said the assignment line was pretty good, the one you just gave before about fucking for the flag. Oh, I mean, the assignment wins for that for sure. I mean, fuck, yeah. that's, that's amazing, you know, just, just okay. think All of right. England or whatever. Done. All right, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Let's start with the assignment. <laughs> uh, we'd have to be saying, what, Aidan Quinn playing the jackal himself? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Okay, how about uh, Bruce Willis in the jackal? Oh, yeah. Richard Gere? Richard Gere, right? No, it's Bruce Bruce Willis gets to play all of those other characters. It's Jackal versus Jackal. Yeah. You love it. Richard Gere loves it when he's wearing the fat suit with the moustache driving the minivan. Like he just thinks he, he look he looks very smug, doesn't he? Who, Bruce? Yeah. Yeah. Unassuming middle-aged guy. Like, look at me with makeup. Look at me. I, it, it's like he's he's doing what Nicolas Cage did there in adaptation. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Just mad schlub. I'd watch a whole movie of him as that guy. Um Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, Richard Gere has a goatee at one point. Doesn't does doesn't compete. No, exactly. Jackal v Jackal. So, which it's a it's a jack off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the take your paycheck award with the assignment. Uh, I don't know yeah. who's taking a paycheck there. Maybe Donnie. Well, in any other movie, you'd say Donald Sutherland. I mean, this guy turns up in so many movies without looking. How many IMDb credits do you reckon he has as an actor? Oh, uh, 70? 70. Yeah. Dude, 196. This guy will turn up and do anything. <laughs> I have noticed he turns up in like even straight to video on demand movies these days. Oh. Like it's pretty remarkable. Hey, you know, like well, Backdraft 2. I'm back. He'll come back for that. Backdraft 2. Oh, yeah, man, Jesus. Backdraft 2 come back for that. You scroll down his thing, it's just movie after movie. Like good on him. Like the dude just... Maybe he's afraid that if he retires he'll die or something. He just He's just pumping this shit out and good for I him. I do admire this situation. Like I was looking at the uh, reel of William Shatner recently. The what? I've been watching. Uh, the reel? Oh, the filmography, just oh, scanning through okay. his history of movies. And I, I was watching basically um, Boston Legal, which started in 2004, I think. So he's like then he was like. 71 or something. He's like 90-ish now almost or something like that, right? He's always looked great for his age. Mm. He's still acting. He's like 90. He's still acting. And you think, why? Like, why? Like, he has more money than he needs. The older he gets, the less money he needs to live. Clearly he loves it. He's not actually starring in amazing movies. He's starring in movies like Backdraft 2 but worse. So I guess they just love working and it keeps them. He literally does want to live forever, Shatner. He appeared in that documentary about Ray Kurzweil, that futurist. I can't remember the name of it. And he takes like 46 pills a day to try and literally live forever. That makes sense though because he does look incredible for his age. Like he doesn't have like any of those features of someone who's aged in terms of his skin, in terms of elasticity or blotches or his hairline. He looks Amazing. So whatever he's taking, I don't know if it's, you know, causation or correlation, but he's looking good for his age. Good on. Good on him. Good on Shatner. All right. How did we how do we get to Shatner again? <laughs> Where did we uh taking a paycheck. So we had Donnie down. Oh yeah. And <laughs> Okay. Okay, this is this is harsh. Is Sydney Portier possibly contender for this award? Someone who rarely acted 
over his entire career on screen, right? This is the final film he's in. Just give you an idea of what he was in around the same time. It was very odd. So you mentioned Sneakers 92. Mm. He's 55 credits. But it goes uh, a piece of action at 77, 11-year break, mm-hmm. <laughs> Shoot to Kill in 88, Little Nikita 88, Separate but Equal 91, Sneakers 92, three-year break and then two episodes of a TV show called Children of the Dust, To Serve with Love 96, Mandela and De Klerk, TV Movie 97, played Mandela, The Jackal 97, then he does four more movies, two TV movies, uh, four TV movies, and then he's out, he's done, one undone and dies. You know what's interesting about Sidney Poitier though? Like everyone thinks about him as this like very, you know, serious actor and, yeah, like the films that he was most famous for are very, you know, he he, he plays them very seriously in the heat of the night, guess who's coming to dinner, you know. But as a director, he directed some terrible comedies and some good comedies. But he directed, did you know, did you know, Ben, Sidney Poitier directed Ghost Dad, the Bill Cosby movie where Bill Cosby is a ghost and a dad? Oh, wow. Yeah. That hasn't aged well for all sorts of reasons. Gee. Yeah, totally. You know, uh, he directed, he directed um, a couple of Gene Wilder movies, you know. Um, the, the one he did with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, Stir Crazy, is pretty good. But it just, it's just funny to look at his directing credits and, I don't know, I guess you expect his directing credits for some reason to be, you know, serious, important movies. He's like, nah, nah, Bill Cosby's going to be Ghost Dad. I guess the problem is, is that in 67 he comes out with In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, like just an amazing one-two punch. With the presence of those two films and then, He's always had that certain gravitas on screen and was an exceptionally, exceptionally articulate actor, right? Mm. That I just think basically, for better or worse, he was defined by that Mm. for the remaining 50 years of his his life. Um, Totally. And in some ways, I mean, in the heat of the night, that character, Detective Virgil Tibbs, I mean, you see shades of that in the character he's playing here in The Jackal, you know, just the earnestness of it and... um, the uh, the strong moral compass. It's a, it's you know it's a similar character that has a lineage to that character back then. So I don't know. I think we're get, we're looking at giving it to him, right? I don't know. You 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 mentioned him. This was definitely before Bruce Willis's serious paycheck phase. So I don't really think this is like this is that. So look, if you want to give it to Sidney Poitier, by all means, done. All right, moving on to the uh, Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Uh, which actor triggered hates that guy, Gabe? Let's start with the assignment. Uh, it was pretty, again, it's pretty. Not many. It was a Euro film, so there weren't as many recognisable actors. <laughs> Euro film. It was a Euro film. How am I supposed to know who any of these people are? <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of Claudia Ferry or Celine Bonnieri or exactly. Liliana Comoroscari. If they haven't popped up in a Marvel movie, they don't exist. That's right. Fuck them. You know, sure. So the jackal. How about how about uh, the jackal? Well, like we said, J.K. Simmons. Totally, and and I think this was pre J.K. Simmons. Really, kind of the ubiquity, the the joy, the joy of J.K. You know, um, it was you know pre Spider Man. It was pre uh, that drumming movie, whatever it's called. Yeah, um, where he appeared everywhere, and he just had so much authority yeah. on screen. This is, but this is here actually he's. 
He's a bit more emasculated, right? Like, yeah, yeah, he's skinny. Like, he kind of, he did that Jeff Bezos thing where suddenly he got real big or something. But this is before he eclipsed J.K. Rowling as the, the best J.K., you know. Now he exists in a pantheon of J.K.'s of one, number one, J.K. Simmons. So, you know. Well, J.K. kind of self-imploded, so. That's right. That actually helped this J.K. rise Right, to the exactly. But, you know, not to say he didn't totally Stephen Bradbury this thing. A, a lot of it is pure J.K. Simmons talent. But. You know, Can cool. I just say something here? Okay. I read a review today about um, a accomplished uh, surfer who won 20 years ago the World Championships and they referred to her as doing a Steve Bradbury um, or a uh, – who else was it? Someone else. But they kind of aligned the Stephen Bradbury as being an underdog and then against great odds winning. No. That to me isn't Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury is basically like you're good – you're not the best, and then a series of unfortunate accidents happen to other people, and you succeed as so you unwittingly win. That's to me the definition. There. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Also, if you're Australian, you'd have no idea who we're talking about if you're not Australian. So Google Stephen Bradbury. Long story short, America, it was Winter Olympics. They, know, right? yeah. they were racing around the ring, and the first what five people? Everybody all slipped. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> else. Everyone slipped and fell in the final like what? the final circuit, and he was coming last and he won by just purely standing up. That's right. <laughs> by remaining upright, That's he right. won. It, it's triumphant because anyone could have done it in a way. Like it took hard work to get there, but once you were there, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I could do it. It's basically a Cool Runnings S story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, sort of. So uh, who else? Matil- Matilda May. I don't know if you know who she is. No. And she turns up in um, The Jackal. Very famously she was in the movie Life Force playing the sort of lead space vampire. She spent most of the movie naked. Unforgettable. Wow, that's niche. Okay, um, let's get to JK. Sorry. <laughs> All right, fine. I'm going to have to tell Matilda. You know, that falls to me, but, you know. And watch Space Force by yourself again. <laughs> well, who else am I going to watch it with? <laughs> okay, moving on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough uh, in the assignment. Look, we bagged him before, hmm. but I actually just find Donald Sutherland I'll, on screen to be him. amazing. I love him. I love him. Like, he can do no wrong. Like, he can read the telephone book like Anthony Hopkins and I'm there for it. So he could be in anything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no movie that is not made better by him turning up. So even though he's made a 200-plus credits or so, make more. That's right. Make more. Just never stop, never stop. How about The Jackal? Hmm. I really feel that Sydney Portia has just uh, slowed down in recent times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, who else? Anyone else? Uh, no, look, let's give it to Donald. Just He's just great. All right. uh, voice. He's got charisma. Okay, uh, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals it, Gabe? Let's start with the Jackal. Oh, with the Jackal we'll go first. Well, what have we yeah. got? We've got the character called the Jackal. That's a funny name. Um, <laughs> Declan Mulqueen. Is that? That's not that silly, is it? Not really. There's not. No, no, actually jump out at all. I mean. No. Yeah, okay. How about the assignment? Okay, well, they have Lieutenant Commander Annabel Ramirez. Annabel? I agree. Why is he? Do you, do you think that he was called Hannibal and then they realised <laughs> it drew associations with 
Silence of the Lambs is they basically just renamed him on the page in the credits and then just hoped you would notice the H pronounced because it is a weird name. It seems unnecessarily complicated and raises more questions than is necessary. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I've never – this is the only time I've ever heard of anyone being called – Annabelle. I mean, you and I, Ben, are huge Navy buffs. We both know that, you know, there was a very famous French ship uh, built in December of 1777 called the Annabelle. Um, and I think most people know that. But beyond that, you just never see characters called Annabelle. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a winner. Annabelle? And the- Annabelle? Annabelle? Yeah, Annabelle it is. All right, the Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about. Well, we've got to rule out the assignment as we just both watched them. No, I can't. I, I... I think it's the contender for me because I forgot that I hadn't seen it. Oh, so it's the ultimate Mento Award because you actually forgot the entire movie or rather you forgot you hadn't seen it. Uh, yeah, exactly. That yeah. wins. That wins That wins hands down. That's a classic. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yep. Okay. That's a brain fart inside an explosion. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Okay. The Die Hard Award. Uh, did any of these movies inspire a uh, crop of clones? Um, I mean, they're both both allegedly or loosely based on a true life story, so not in that sense. But I guess this to me taps into the in-the-line-of-fire genre, you know, mm-hmm. of the, uh, the the renegade uh, assassin, the sniper, um, the chameleon. Can you think off the top of your head, and this isn't a loaded question because I can't, I'm just trying to think of anything that is, you know, an iconic chameleon movie. I, I guess Face Off is really the sure. ludicrous extension of all of this, right? Sure. I'm pretty sure Oliver Assayas was not inspired by either of these movies to make his excellent miniseries about Carlos the Jackal. And given that it was made, I don't know, 17 years later or something, unfortunately we can't include that in this series of movies, but God damn, that is a good movie. And I'd feel bad if I didn't uh, fit into this podcast somewhere. Go watch Oliver Assayas' Carlos starring Edgar Ramirez. Ooh, so good. Yeah, I do love Edgar Ramirez. I might watch that. Yeah. Um, Well, that brings us to a perfect time. Uh, It's time for that time where we discuss the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2. Love to milk that cow. So (laughs) milk that cow, Gabe. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to The Assignment or The Jackal, and they're both uh, action biopics based on those two chameleons, <laughs> Carl the Jackal. Okay. So it is even possible, Gabe, either <laughs> literally or figuratively, can we make a sequel to either of these movies and what's our pitch to make it? Uh, Go. Okay, here it is. Uh, Donald Sutherland turns back up at Aidan Quinn's house after the assignment and says, you've got to come out of retirement. There's a third twin. Genius, genius. What if it turned out that... The, in the assignment, uh, he actually finds out he is actually the real-life twin. They do a DNA chip test. That's why he looks so similar. Oh, yeah, okay. He has to go back and kill his brother. It's called the assignment of the brother. <laughs> oh, the reassignment. Um, well, I mean, I guess in some ways that's what that film was by, is it Walter Hill, the assignment, right? Isn't that the ultimate kind of chameleon movie where someone, well, in this case against their own will, oh, yeah. undergoes gender reassignment surgery? Wow. Uh, and then goes from being an on-screen male character to a female character, I think. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's a, a, I mean, that's a premise. <laughs> it uh, is a premise. It's a problematic I mean, premise. Okay. I like that idea you had earlier, which is what if at the end of the assignment you did reveal that uh, – 
Carlos had actually switched himself with Annibal. Annibal! And then Donald Sutherland realises this and has to prove that, you know, or Donald Sutherland teams with Annibal's wife to prove that the man I married is not my husband. He is, in fact, international terrorist Carlos the Jackal. So basically it could be like season one of Homeland. So in that film there, um, that character comes back from war and it's suspected that he might actually have been converted to being a sympathetic terrorist whilst being in captivity. And the entire first season is questioning, is he actually you know, a convert or not, and the end is revealed, spoilers for Homeland Season 1, that he is. But by that stage, he sort of developed a relationship with um, his uh, CIA handler, which complicates the whole matter. So it'd be kind of like that, right? So, for yeah. example, the real Carl's Jekyll now has perfect access to an intelligence agency to therefore commit the ultimate assassination on a particularly big political figurehead and... No one believes. Well, he, maybe maybe his wife actually, deep down inside, feels something's up. <laughs> you know why, Ben? <laughs> because he's just <laughs> he's just going downtown. I mean, all the time. The problem, the problem is, is that unless she dies in the film, the film falls apart because she has to ask three questions like, you know, where do we get married? Um, where do we spend our holidays in nineteen ninety one or whatever? And he falls apart. So perhaps she might die at the very start of the movie, so she can't interrogate his history. And therefore, it just becomes a film about a bit of a cat and mouse game between him and Donald Sutherland. That's one version of it. Yeah, okay. Look, that's that's not a bad pitch for a sequel to this, sure. Um, don't mind it. Don't mind it. What about Son of the Jackal? I like the idea of him being inside. Yeah, okay, so, ooh, Son of the Jackal. So who's Son? So what if, say, well, either film you could do this with is that either they, I, I guess in the assignment makes more sense that that guy being a bit of a Don Juan DeMarco has fathered a child, his side an offspring somewhere, and that person picks up the mantle to carry on his father's legacy. But if you're thinking about making a profitable sequel, the studio will be looking to us to say, well, the Jackal had Richard Gere, Bruce Willis. We can get one of them back. <laughs> Maybe Jack Black. Um, let's do it where one of their sons or daughters, maybe the daughter, mix things up. Carries on the mantle. So, so Jackal Pup, um, uh, are they a terrorist too? Well, that's okay. So to tease it out further, either they could be a terrorist too to carry on the work that the first that their parent, their father, couldn't do, or the hero of the film is a terrorist. Back to that whole uh, expression: one person's terrorist, another person's freedom fighter, and perhaps they lost someone to Donald Sutherland and his mission and they're coming back to seek revenge or trying to track down the alive jackal from the assignment to finish off the job that the CI left undone. Hmm. Okay, what about this? It's 23 years later. The original jackal film, Day of the Jackal, was what, made in 1969 or something like that, right? Is that right? Something like that. Ah. Uh, yeah. Are you thinking of remake? Well... Maybe, like, oh, 1973, sorry. So it's almost the same amount of time. Is it, Are we due for a Jackal remake? Oh, uh, it was so obvious it was right in front of us all the time. You know what? I reckon you could remake the Jackal now 
pretty much verbatim, verbatim, but except don't make the or cast someone who can speak with an Irish accent or change that character's backstory, played by Richard Gere, and that film would stand up now because the themes of the film, the journey. I did say you're in a world now of uh, facial recognition and mobile phones, but I think you could work around that. And the logic would be is that the character doesn't use mobile phones and hides his face at gas stations and stuff because we live in a world with higher surveillance. Totally. So they can't rely on those tools and rather entering countries on passports, he does what he does in The Jackal, the first one, or the one in 1997 where he sails in undercover within a flotilla of boats in a competition. Mm, mm. Um, so he does, does more stuff like that. I mean, it feels, you know, it feels like that makes more sense these days than it did then. You know, the ubiquity of surveillance would mean that he'd or it, like there wouldn't be a moment in his life where he hasn't worn a disguise by now because he just has to. So if you made this film, I think you have to up the stakes. I think it's a bit too ambiguous who the victim is. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a surprise at the end who his target is, but... I mean, I think you probably you probably go for something much more like a higher profile president or leader, um, because why not? That just makes the stakes higher. But would you? What would you improve on or do differently besides modernising it for today's technology, and besides having a better Irish accent? <laughs> what would you do differently in a remake now, where we've got full carte blanche to take the existing script and do whatever we want with it? Hmm. I wonder if there's a way to incorporate the disguises even more into his plan. Like it's uh, like like can we sort of mush together the assignment and the jackal in a way because these are our two twin movies and that he has to disguise himself as his target or something. So the, the, the disguise element is absolutely central. Like in The Jackal 1997, he dresses up as a cop, sure, but he could have dressed up as anything, right? It's his big machine gun that's doing all the heavy lifting, can we somehow just make the disguise the the key? Okay. I like what you're thinking here. It's basically taking the best of both movies. I really do like in the assignment where he has to actually take on the mannerisms and so on of his target to get information from one of the ex-girlfriends because the stakes are high, right? Because if he fails, then she'll alert the real jackal to the fact that he's being chased and the whole thing falls apart. And, you know, he could get killed at any stage. We always talk about, you know, we talked before about those erotic thrillers where there's a risk of there being a knife under the bed during a sex scene or whatever. So it kind of adds, like, danger to the journey, mm. whereas in The Jackal, you never get the sense that uh, Bruce Willis's character is actually in danger himself, right? No. he He's killing people, but if you were able to inject the danger that Aiden Quinn's character experiences in The Jackal plus the journey to inhabit various disguises that Bruce Willis does, it's the best of both worlds, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like modern movies, though, you'd also be like, so who's the opposite of a man who wears disguises all the time? A man who never wears di- – no, that doesn't quite work. <laughs> uh, a, man who, a man who cannot wear disguises because he's too sweaty. The prosthesis just fall right off. Um, a man who's so famous that it's – like what's his, what's his altar? Like what's his other? What's his, what is the yin to his yang, the, the, the heads to his tails, the flip side of his coin? <laughs> Actually, speaking of flipping something over – the idea of, say, an actor who's been made famous in movies for the last 20 years playing various characters with and without prosthetics, someone like Kate Blanchett would be amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like where she does the Holly Hunter accent and- Massive what? ham. Yeah, but 
this to me would be the best of her, right? Because I love Kate Blanchett, but she can also be sometimes like being Kingsley at 20% higher than oh, yeah. required. I'm thinking of, for example, the aviator where she was playing a real-life character, which is a bit more complicated, but imagine her doing her Holly Hunter accent in one scene and then doing a British accent in the other and playing a striking femme fatale in one scene and then playing a dowdy sort of low-key soccer mum another. She'd be great. I love it. I love it. She'd be amazing. I think that's what we do. And I think then the title is obvious. What's a female jackal called? The jackaless? <laughs> no, it's just the jackal. Come on, Ben, work with me here. What? what, what? It's just the what? It's the what? It's just, just jackal. It's just a jackal. It's a joke. Jesus. Oh, right. that's very clever, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, and let's we make a sequel or reboot to I like it. both The Assignment and The Jackal. I like it. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our sensational sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this ep sound so good. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Insta. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings? Well, I guess Twitter, I guess, at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. We can find this pod and all my other ones. Thank you for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another classic twin movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. They're all classics. Oh, I've got to wrap my head around this now, man. See you, man. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>